Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Iowa, along with the rest of the world, is facing serious environmental challenges. But here in Iowa, we do have our own unique set of problems. As an agricultural state, we're dealing with soil loss and degradation. We have multiple water quality challenges. Iowa is the most altered state in the union when it comes to natural habitat, and that has meant a loss of biodiversity. And along with everyone else on the planet, we're dealing with climate change. But all All of this doesn't mean that there is no hope. The book Tending Iowa's Land, Pathways to a Sustainable Future, is a blend of natural history, human history, personal stories, science, agriculture, and solutions. And it brings together 28 contributors who represent many different walks of life in many different parts of Iowa. Later in the hour, I'll talk with two of the contributors to the collection, cattle farmer Seth Watkins and Larry Weber, who's director of the Institute of Hydraulic Research at the University of Iowa. With me now is Cornelia Mutel editor of the collection. She is a science writer and author of a number of books about nature and climate change. Connie, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Charity. It's really, really nice to be here. Well, it's wonderful to be here. And in the introduction, you write about how the last several books you've written were going to be your last book. And You took on this book, which brings together 27 other contributors. It had to be an incredible challenge of organization and communication and editing. What convinced you to take on this book? Why write it? Well, I think that the need to get this information out was my my basic point. Um, I, I really have always written books because I have a passion for the subject matter. Otherwise, they don't don't interest me that much. And the needs in Iowa now to face, well, first of all, to admit that we have these huge environmental problems, and then to face them, and then to go beyond the, the grief, the kind of despair that people might have, the... Um, all of those things, and to actually act, to move to action. That's why I wrote this book. And um, the structure and the content was was really uh, shaped around trying to move the reader through knowledge by teaching them the science into action by including essays by um, Iowans who have been our acti- activists and really our models for uh for making a difference in Iowa. You, as I mentioned, brought together voices from many different walks of life and from all over the state of Iowa. Who, what kinds of voices did you want to be represented? Well, I wanted the, uh, the science, I, I wanted this to be a science-based book, a data-driven book, not anecdotes, not um, politics or economics or anything like that, just straight science. That's what I am. I'm trained as a scientist. That's what is the basis of reality in my life. So that had to be the basis. And that part wasn't hard for me to put together because I knew, um, I've gotten to know so many people across the state who have been active in all of the fields um, that you mentioned, the soil, the water, the climate change, and, and biodiversity loss. Um, but I also 
really wanted to get uh, some fun in the book, some lightness, some air, um, something to pull readers in and through um, from one science-driven chapter to the next. And so I, got, I included essays um, by, by, again, what I, the people that I consider activists in Iowa. They might not consider themselves that. But people of action, people of belief, people who think that there's a resilient hope Resilient hope for the future in Iowa, if we just get get going. Um, so I brought those voices in as well. Those people were harder for me to find. Um, I think about half of them, half of the dozen essays um, by activists in this book, uh, relate to agriculture. And I didn't know the, most of those people personally. A few I did, um, and the others I had gotten to know um, tangentially, but but. That was a little bit harder to find. That's one of the things that I really love about the book is that you are, I mean, you're bringing together the voices of scientists, which are, you know, that's something that that people who are concerned about these issues are are tuned into. But you also bring together voices of people who care, people who are, are living this reality day to day and want to be part of solutions. Yes. And, yes. you know, I guess when we talk about a, a science-based book, that probably sounds a little bit intimidating to some people. I don't find this hmm. to be an intimidating collection. And, and was that – did you want to make sure that this was something that, that people just – would feel connected to the authors. I mean, this definitely. everybody puts themselves into their essays. Definitely, definitely. Um, I wanted the book to be readable. If it's not readable, um, I don't read a book that is just fact-based. I have a hard time getting through it. So I try to think about what I'd like to read. And and the thing is that since um, since prehistory, humans have been programmed to listen to stories. That's how we used to pass on our history, train our children, and the like. And so it's in our genes. So um, the authors, I worked closely with the authors. This wasn't was not at all a book where I just found somebody to write about a subject and then let them go. They got very specific instructions. And and the first one was start the essay, start the science chapter with a personal story, end with a personal story, and put a little hooks in throughout. And I also said, um, you know, strict word limits. Chapters can't be long. You can't tell everything. Pick a few points, and teach about those points, and that's enough. If we just teach the main points, that's that's making a big step forward. Um, I also worked hard with getting the authors to get to know each other a little bit. I think that um, a book like this, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a book like this has to be written by a family, not by disjunct people. And so the different sections in the book, um, for example, the section on soil, soil uh, problems, uh, all of the authors had a Zoom meeting together, maybe one or two, maybe three, I can't remember. Um, I passed chapters among the authors of single sections. I wrote uh, kind of updates. I'm still doing it, updates to the author, talking about our book because it's not my book really. It's it's the book of all of ours. So so all of those things I worked to for for the authors to think positively about their writing 
and to have fun doing it because I thought that would mean that the readers would have fun reading well, it. You're absolutely right. That definitely comes through. And, and every author does share some of their personal stories. So, Connie, why don't you tell me a little bit about your personal story? Because you do share your deep love for the land in Iowa, which is something that you've done in all of the books that you've written that I've read. But but tell me a little bit about that that piece of land that you live on and have invested so much love and care into. Yes, I think you're talking about the woodland that my husband and I own, where we've lived for 45 years now. And um, I'm an ecologist by training, and we're doing ecological restoration on that land. Um, so my vision of that land has changed. I went from it being a kind of a backdrop where we raised our kids and tried to get our kids into nature, and they're all very involved with with nature very now, and they're now involving our grandkids with nature, which is wonderful, um, to going into active restoration of the land when they left, and then kind of settling down into what I'll call a more... Um, spiritual zone. And I want to mention this because I I have come to believe very strongly um, that we will not uh, be able to solve our problems until we respect all of the lives in Iowa, all of the animals and plants, until we realize that the natural world is is not a backdrop for human action. It's it's um, critical to our survival, but it also has a, a right to exist as much as our right to exist. So I now look out the window at, our, at the birds at the feeder, at the animals that I see, and I, I kind of communicate with them. And, and I think if I do any more writing, that's what I want to write about in my, as I move through my life. You also share some experiences that I think a lot of us who grew up in Iowa and grew up connected to the land and nature in Iowa have had of taking your grandkids for a favorite paddle, taking them out on the water, and then feeling really uncomfortable about the water that you were on. So you have watched this land change. You have watched us get closer and closer to what you really feel is a tipping point. Yes, and I think you're talking about the sections, the introductions. I did write a an introduction to each of the four sections, and in those I tried to, to share stories of my own life. And you're right, I wrote about um, taking the grandkids out where their, their fathers had been 20 years earlier, and their fathers had been jumping in and swimming around, and now I was telling the grandkids not to get wet, not to get their hands in the water. Um, it's it's there's a deep grief I think that that um, many in Iowa feel because of that degradation. But again, I want to move beyond the degradation to the hope um, and to the very strong statement that we know what to do with to 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 remedy our environmental problems in Iowa. It's not like we don't have solutions. The problem is that we don't have the collective will to act, and. Um, that's something that we all need to to work on. I think we can work on it every time we go to the grocery store and make a, a decision, every time we talk to our friends about our concerns, 
Um, and every time we write to our legislators, within, do in, every time we write a new book, and that's what I did here, this is my contribution, hopefully, to a more resilient future. We are going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Cornelia Mutel. She is the editor of the book, Tending Iowa's Land, Pathways to a Sustainable Future. And the book is a collection of contributions from 28 different writers from many different walks of life, many different places in the state of Iowa. We're going to hear from a couple of the contributors uh, a little bit later on in the hour as well. And I also want to mention that as this book is coming out, there are opportunities to interact with Connie and the other contributors. There will be a reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on Sunday, February 5th at 2 p.m., Dog-Eared Books in Ames on Friday, February 10th at 7 p.m., Dragonfly Books in Decora on Wednesday, March 1st at 7 p.m. and many other events as well. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about a book called Tending Iowa's Land, Pathways to a Sustainable Future. In the book, we take a deep look at some of the incredible environmental challenges that the state of Iowa is facing, including challenges with our soil loss and degradation, water quality, climate change, loss of biodiversity. It is a collection that features scientists and farmers and others who bring together their expertise and their stories. And it's also a collection that is not only full of good science, but it's also full of hope and practical advice as well. With me is the editor of the collection, Cornelia Mutel. And uh, before we bring one of the contributors into the conversation, Connie... I do want to talk about this because this is a collection that um, does include the voices of many farmers and, you know, farmers who, of course, have a, a strong bond with the land, who are committed to trying to do what they're doing in a way that does not further degrade the land. Um but bringing or scientists and farmers together in conversation is not something we see a whole lot of. Why was that important to you? Well, I, I, I realized this again. I, I learned so much by putting this book together. And one of the things that became very obvious as I moved through the book was that the book, you could, you could have divided the book into a, chap, into a book about agriculture and a book about nature. And what I was trying to do was to put the two together and and what I um, realized in that process is that Iowa, of course, at one point was the most sustainable ecosystem 200 years ago, the most sustainable ecosystem on the earth. It could have gone on doing its thing forever without human intervention. And we have transformed that to one of the least sustainable ecosystems, but most productive um, in terms of crops and growing things in the world. So we've traded one extreme for the other. 
The point is that we can't do without either. If we, dis- if we destroy all of nature, we will have ecological collapse, and every, th- every species on this earth will suffer um, from that. And if we um, take away agriculture, we won't have food. And so the obvious thing, I mean, it's so obvious after two years of working on this, is that the solution is to blend agriculture. And there is a strong movement, Charity, with doing that regenerative agriculture, practical farmers of Iowa. Iowa. Um, Lisa Schulte-Moore wrote a chapter in here about her regenerative agriculture research at Iowa State, which is very strong. She just got a what what's a called MacArthur a MacArthur Genius, Genius yep. Award for that last year. So this is going forward. Um, we don't, we, again, we know what to do. We know what's needed. We just need to do more of it and faster. I, I feel like there is a, I mean, there is a divide, but there's also maybe a sense that the divide is even deeper than it is between um, scientists and environmentalists and agriculture. There are a oh. I mean, so many farmers in the state of Iowa who do deeply love and care about the land. And, of course, they want that land to sustain into the future. And they're, and they're acting on that. They're using cover crops. They're using no-till. They're installing buffer strips. A lot of them are putting maybe putting in little patches of prairie here and there. So this is going it's going forward and we need to encourage it through I think through government policy as well as through social support. Right. And of course not all farmers, but let's yeah. introduce a farmer who Great. is doing this kind of work. Seth Watkins is one of the contributors to this collection. He's a cattle producer from southwest Iowa near Clarinda. Hello Seth. Hi, Charity. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being here today. And uh, I I mean, I think a number of people are, are familiar with you through YouTube and, and other sources. But Seth, uh, for people who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about your operation. Sure. I, uh, I raise uh, beef cattle in southwest Iowa. Um, I rent most of my land. I run some cows on shares. And my wife and I own uh, a considerable number of cows also. And um, honestly, I, you know, I really appreciated listening to Connie. And the biggest part of our operation is just trying to find the most appropriate use for every acre, whether that's getting it back into forage because it's highly erodible land, simply not farming it because it's something that just needs to be left wild. And um, I guess recognizing that as farmers, we don't just produce beef or corn or soy. We've got a responsibility to produce clean water and clean air and and bring the biodiversity back to our state that we so desperately need. And what I see is when we do that, a lot of good things happen. You know, um, I think Connie said it really well. It's not, you know, agriculture on one side and nature on the other. I know from experience that when I get my ecology right, I have the best cowherd performance because I have the birds I need to eat the insects to, to the things that keep the water clean to even like when we talked about climate change, I'm discovering that uh, where I have proper shade in my pastures, um, my grass keeps growing because like one of our dominant grasses fescue, when the bottom side of the blade of grass hits 84 degrees, it stops growing. But if you can have some shade, some canopy and, and more of a permaculture or a silvo pasture, you can have better production. And uh, there is a lot of hope in this, and there's a lot of sadness out there also. 
Seth, you had a real moment of awakening in 1998 that made you want to change how you were farming. Tell me what happened. Well, you know, when you farm, um, and I'll be real clear, this is just my opinion, but one of the things I've seen in agriculture is things like extension that we need so much has slowly had its budgets cut. Our land grants have had I think their budget's cut, and we turn more and more to industry um, as our source for information as farmers. And with that transition, we saw a lot of things come through. Um, Like in my case, it was saying you should have your calves in uh, January and February so that you have bigger calves to sell in the fall and you have more time to spend on your plant or planting corn in April. And, And a lot of arguments from ag economists came along that, well, gosh, you know, you want to do what your industry experts are telling you to do. And generally, they kind of had cleaner clothes and nicer vehicles than I was driving. <laughs> so I assume they probably knew what they were doing. I mean, I'm just, you know, not, not to knock them too hard. but and, and they also would talk about how I've got this huge responsibility to use all this modern technology to feed the world. So the practice I was using was that, you know, February, early March calving. And, and you know, you we need to recognize we need to use both sides of our brain, the artistic side and the, and the math and science side, so to speak. And I'd see those things. I'd see, you know, a little, this isn't natural for cows or any room on a calf in cold, rotten weather like that. They, they should follow the, the, the warmth and the seasons and what we call green up. You know, when your grass is getting green, that's when the deer or the moose or the elk or whatever should be starting the babies and our cows are part of that. But I was trying to defy it because I was told that was what would make me a good farmer. And we had a big blizzard on uh, March 11, 1998. And, you know, not only seeing the cows suffer and we made it through and we got kept the cattle alive, but we worked ridiculously hard and, and it wasn't good for them. But I also saw the runoff. I saw the, you know, the, the runoff into our streams. I saw the impact of all that snow. And I just looked at myself and I said, you know, this is something I don't ever want to experience again. And I said, why am I working against Mother Nature? It was a really simple question, but I asked it. And I made a simple change. I simply changed my, you know, I put the bulls out later and I started having calves in April. And with that, there was a lot of, uh, there was, I would say, some pushback from the industry saying, oh, you know, your calves aren't going to be big enough in the fall or you're, you know, you should just be using this antibiotic or that antibiotic. And, and you know, this is, in agriculture, we find ways, for lack of better words, to to conquer Mother Nature. And um, I made the change, and it worked. And a and, lot of and Seth, it worked top. on a yeah. lot of levels. And that's one of the yeah. things that is so inspiring about your story. Because so you you listen to nature, and you started making changes. You were able to use fewer inputs on your land. Your cattle were actually more profitable for you because there was a lower outlay on the front end and they were healthier, bigger animals. I mean, Seth, this is an incredible success story. And I also get the sense that you are a much happier farmer. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, you know, for lack of better words, mother knows best is if anyone gets any lesson out of this, listen to her and and do what she says. But the thing that bothers me, again, this isn't rocket science. This is just simply going back to ways that people, you know, the people before us, the people that worked with the land, this is just common sense. And 
it makes me sad that we keep dumping more finite resources in in this attempt to defy nature instead of just listening to her and 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 working with her and you know eventually we'll get it but i think the and and you're exactly right my my inputs did go down my my productivity went up all those wonderful things happened because it's just i reduced my reliance on finite resources by better utilizing and managing the natural resources that really work. And I just hope we all understand uh, this works really well, and we can document it now. The scientists can come through and show why this works. They can show why it's important for our state, and and uh, and that's a relief. You know, it hasn't always been that way, but now we've got both the, the practical aspect and the data and the science. Have you inspired others to follow your example, Seth? Oh, sure. I mean, we're seeing more and more people do it. I think the the challenge where we are in like the Southern Iowa Drift Plain is is Iowa's determination to put every single acre to corn and soy production. And um, a lot of that is policy driven and a lot of it does not consider the, what we're doing to the land itself. I think we've probably lost close to a million acres of marginal land in Southern Iowa to crop production. And, uh, when you see the soil, the soil loss is unsustainable. The impact on our water is, is devastating. The impact on biodiversity is devastating. And, and you see that through our communities too. But the good news again is mother nature's really benevolent. I mean, if you give her half a chance, things will come back quickly. Seth, in, in your essay, you also write about, because you, you have a cattle operation, but you also have some land in row crops. You write about using cover crops, and that's integrated into your cattle operation. And that's, you know, that's something that <laughs> there are a lot of levels here that we don't have time to get into. But I, I do, I've talked to a lot of people about cover crops over the years. And people who use cover crops tend to be real evangelists about them and the power that they have to really help regenerate the soil. And, um, you know, the the system, once you get it down, can be incredibly beneficial for the farming operation. But we haven't seen growth of cover crops move as quickly as, as I guess I would think after talking to some of those farmers who are so excited about it. Seth, why do you think we have such resistance to some of these methods that are so good for the planet and can be good for the farmer too? Well, first of all, there is a cost to do it. There's a timeline for it to adapt. But honestly, at the end of the day, so long as there's programs like federal crop insurance and guaranteed revenue on highly erodible land, and there's actually very little accountability to care for that land to where the erosion rates are truly tolerable, you're not going to see a change. Um, I hate to be that that person. I think the other part is we need to look at this as um, we need to reintegrate livestock. It, maybe someone is just a grain farmer, someone's just a livestock farmer, but we've got to come out with economic development funding to get perimeter fencing around some of these crop fields to get a water source so that I, as a, as a livestock farmer, can start renting my neighbor's land in a more efficient way and they can make their cover crop work, plus they're going to get the manure from my cattle. I mean, we've got to start recognizing, you know, Connie Toss talked about acknowledging. We have to acknowledge that the very resources that have made Iowa great are going to be exhausted in 50 years. Our soil is our main one. Our water's close to shot. We can bring it back. 
And one of the ways we're going to bring it back is by using livestock in a smart way. I'm not talking about more confinement. I'm talking about actually decentralizing the livestock industry somewhat where we have more cattle grazing over multiple fields instead of concentrated in one area. Um, that's going to be, I, I don't see any other way to do this. And um, we have to come back to that very simple fact of, again, uh, our resources will be exhausted in 50 years. Seth, if we don't change. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, for talking with me today. Yep. Seth Watkins is a cattle producer from southwest Iowa near Clarinda. We are talking about the book Tending Iowa's Land Pathways to a Sustainable Future. Seth Watkins, one of the contributors of that collection. Cornelia Mutel is the editor of the collection. She is with me. And uh, Connie, the first part of the book does focus on soil, soil, water, climate change or air, and then also biodiversity. And I, I do think that having a conversation about soil, again, I'm a, I'm a radio host, Connie, and I've had a lot of conversations about soil over the years because it's something that, that is so important in Iowa. And it's also fascinating. But when I say, hey, I'm going to do a show about soil quality, people are like, okay, what are you doing the next day? <laughs> so, I mean, this is a topic that it's hard to get people excited about, but it's so exciting, Connie. There's so much there. There's so much going on in our soil. I think that one of the exciting things, Charity, has been all of the um, publicity that's been given to the to the mycorrhizae, the, the um, fungal connections, specifically among trees, although it's my it's my um, impression that they also exist among prairie plants. And, and those fungal connect connections tie organisms into one superorganism that exchanges um, nutrients um, and what some people will, will say are warning signals about dangers and the like. It's amazing stuff. And, and there have been several books recently um, that have been written for the lay people explaining this and books for kids and the like. So I think that that those books are um, introducing people to the idea of the incredible diversity, more diversity underneath the soil than is above the ground. And it's it's so important because you have an ecosystem that is self-regulating to produce um, nutrients and to produce, uh, to control disease and the like. Um, so that, for example, when the first people came to plow the land here, the first settlers, they didn't need fertilizer. If you have fertile fertile soils that are functioning and healthy, you don't need to add fertilizer. The reason that we dump so much nitrogen on our soils is because we've degraded our soils. We are going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Cornelia Mutel. She is editor of the book Tending Iowa's Land, Pathways to a Sustainable Future. Larry Weber, one of the contributors, is going to join the conversation in a moment, and we're going to talk about water in a deep way in just a moment. There are also opportunities uh, to attend readings from this book. Prairie Lights Bookstore is hosting a reading in Iowa City on Sunday, February 5th at 2 p.m. Dog-Eared Books in Ames, February 10th at 7 p.m. and Dragonfly Books in Decorah on Wednesday, March 1st at 7 p.m. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about Iowa's land, Iowa's water, Iowa's environment. The new book, Tending Iowa's Land Pathways to a Sustainable Future, brings together 28 different contributors who represent many different walks of life, many different parts of the state. And it is a book that blends science with storytelling, science and agriculture and environmental science. And with me, this hour is Cornelia Mutel. She is editor of the collection. She's a science writer and author of a number of books about nature and climate change. And I also want to bring Larry Weber into the conversation. He's the director of the Institute of Hydraulic Research at the University of Iowa. And um, we, we're going to talk about water. And Connie, I'll, I'll let you start us off uh, first, and then Larry's going to come into the conversation. But Water is such an important part of all of our lives. It is essential to all of our lives. And water quality in Iowa <laughs> has been um, something that, that I think people have a growing awareness of how much trouble we're in. And again, this is a chapter that does incorporate hope and solutions. But this is a scary moment in, in Iowa when it comes to water quality. Well, I think that's true. I, I guess I think it's a scary moment with all, with all four of the areas but um but it certainly is both for Iowa and for Iowans for recreation for water use um for what it's doing to nature and for people all the way down the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico where the the dead zone is still increasing um because of the nitrogen and other pollutants we put in up here in in the corn belt well, Larry, I want to bring you into the conversation because um, you you wrote a chapter about water-centered land management. You give us a vision for the future. You also share your personal star story. And like so many people and so many scientists in this collection, you were a farm kid. And that's where you fell in love with nature. And that's a story that we hear again and again. So tell me just a little bit about your origins. Yeah, thank you, Charity. Uh, great to be here this morning. And, um, you know, I grew up on a, a small family farm up in northeast Iowa, 128 acres. Uh, that um, was a four-crop rotation with small grains, alfalfa, corn, and soybeans. Uh, we finished out feeder pigs. We milked about 30 head of cattle. Uh, we raised 500 chickens uh, each year. And as I say in the essay, you know, we had everything that we needed uh, and maybe just a little more. Uh, so it was a wonderful upbringing. Uh, we saw the balance in the system uh, that we had uh, in, in growing you know, crops in that way. Um, that was well before um, crops really became you know, such a commoditized uh, entity in Iowa and profit started driving you know, so much of the industrialized agriculture uh, here in our state. So much of your work has really been involved in, in some catastrophic water incidents in Iowa, the major floods that we've experienced. Uh, 1993 was a very memorable year for a lot of us. Of course, 2008 was a very memorable year. And there have been a lot of other floods in between that, that were really catastrophic. That's just one piece of the puzzle when we look at Iowa's water quality. But it is, it's a difficult, it's a difficult picture to look at, and uh, as I mentioned, this is a this you do share hope for the future. But looking at water in Iowa right now, what do you see? Well, I, I think we need to bring our our focus and attention back to water as an important uh, element of our lives in Iowa. It is one of the commons 
uh, like we expect the sun to shine upon all of us and the air for us to breathe should be fresh and clean. The water should uh, be a commons that's used across our state. Uh, I've said many times in, in the work that we do, really what we're trying to find is a balance between agricultural, economic, water, natural, and human resources. Uh, without that balance across those four commons, uh, it will be unlikely that we'll have the right human resource in our state to really grow our, our economy and serve our agricultural uh, needs for the state. People today want to be able to go out and recreate. Uh, they want to be able to go out and enjoy our water and natural resources. That's uh, become increasingly obvious to us uh, over the past couple of years with the pandemic and people reducing you know, perhaps their travel. They want to be able to get out and recreate on a daily basis or weekly basis in Iowa. They shouldn't have to be expected to go to Minnesota to find clean lakes, and they shouldn't have to go to the mountain states to find clean rivers and streams. They want to be able to find those resources here in our state. When we think about trying to blend you know, water as a resource, as a commons, uh, it has to you know, start with agriculture uh, because our, our state is so dominated by row crop agriculture. How do we start building that, that blended and resilient system back onto our landscape? Part of that is to you know, bring floodplains back into you know, it, uh, their primary river function, uh, pulling row crop agriculture out of the, some of those most intensely and repetitively flooded lands, serves both a flood damage reduction as well as a water quality improvement, and brings you know, biodiversity back onto our landscape. How do we de-intensify agriculture in some parts of our state while it continues to intensify in other parts? The driftless area up in northeast Iowa and the beauty of the Lus Hills out in western Iowa. And as Seth had mentioned in his uh, comments earlier today, in southern Iowa, we're seeing some of that marginal land go into this row crop agriculture. So I would say looking back on the past you know, several decades, we are continually losing the battle against the industrialization of agriculture. And each and every day that we wake up, we lose a little more. You spend a lot of your time, you live in Iowa City, but you own property outside of Iowa City along Old Man's Creek. And you've spent a, a lot of time restoring that land, but also working to restore part of that watershed. I happen to also live near Old Man's Creek, and I know where your land is, and I also know that there are row crops farmed right to the edge of Old Man's Creek on one side of it, and row crops farmed right to the edge of the creek on the other side of it. You've done a great deal with the, the small amount of land that you have, but is does it feel like an insurmountable challenge when you're surrounded like that? Well, it, it can. Um, it can feel, you know, like a daunting challenge. However, you know, I have a personal responsibility, and, and my responsibility is to a parcel of land that Michelle and I own. Uh, it's 100 acres that, that, uh, that together as a family we've decided that we want to you know, invest in the restoration of that property. So we have that obligation. Uh, we have every intention of leaving that to our children, and we hope uh, our children's children. Uh, so, so that's our responsibility uh, on that parcel of land. I also have a greater responsibility to the state of Iowa to share our experience and to share my understanding and knowledge of water resources uh, with folks across the state. And one of the things that you know I'm most proud of in the program that we have on the Iowa Watershed Approach Project has been how we've been able to increase the literacy of water-related issues in our state by meeting with people in watershed management authorities and by sharing with them some of the complex science behind you know, our water and natural resources management 
and how they themselves can do something on perhaps their own piece of land. Tell me a little bit more about that program and and what you've been able to accomplish. Well, it was a wonderful opportunity for the state of Iowa. Um, We were able to um, write a proposal and draw about $96.9 million uh, federal funds to the state um, in the six years of the program, which uh, is just wrapping up today. Uh, We constructed 800 uh, conservation practices, mostly on private lands, farm ponds, wetlands, and some associated structures to hold sediment and soils on their land. Uh, Building those practices have reduced uh, flooding downstream from each one of those projects, as well as provided a water quality engine uh, that takes some of those nitrates and other agricultural pollutants uh, out of our streams and processes them in those uh, those projects. Talking to Seth earlier about his cattle operation, um, he talked about how Farming in conjunction with Mother Nature has improved his operation and improved his quality of life. For the people that you've been working with, with the Watershed Project, do you, what kind of benefits do you see? Because we, of course, we have our own self-interest in mind uh, as, as well as the greater good. Well, you know, again, it's probably, you know, one of, again, the, the most satisfying things of our project is seeing the individual landowners who have stepped forward and said, pick me, uh, in terms of adopting a conservation practice on their land, and then going out and and visiting with those landowners uh, following the completion of the project. And uh, we've had many of the landowners, you know, tour those projects with us and just comment on how good they feel about returning some of the natural, natural processes back onto the land and how it's impacted their biodiversity, their personal enjoyment, their family has been able to you know, enjoy, you know, the farm pond or the wetland and the wildlife that have come back because of those practices. Yeah, I feel like a little bit like a, you know, Pied Piper or Johnny Appleseed sometimes walking around the state, you know, planting seeds of interest in conservation and watching those grow on individual landowners' properties. So we know it can be done. What needs to happen in your mind? I mean, we've talked about uh, the fact that there are great success stories, but the overall story is still... uh, a not very pretty one. What has to happen? Yeah, and so we, we, we talk about this a lot. You know, the conservation work that, that, we're, that we're installing on these um, egg lands comes with a, a very favorable cost share. And so there are federal dollars that have come in and helped to build these practices. And I've estimated that we need a roughly $10 billion of additional cost share to the state of Iowa to build more conservation practices on private lands. As big of a lift as that will be, uh, that alone isn't enough. Uh, we will never cost-share our way out of this environmental and water quality crisis that the state of fa- is facing. Along with cost-share and constructed practices, we need change in policy. So as a, a landowner may receive cost-share, uh, they should also commit to some minimum environmental standard. And we need to make sure that we bring environmental stewardship along with cost-share onto the land. We can't have a landowner building a wetland and receiving a 90% or 50% cost-share for that wetland and then over-applying commercial fertilizer or agricultural manure onto the landscape. We also shouldn't be cost-sharing for cover crops and buffer strips when we see the same landowner intensifying the agricultural drainage on their land. And just as an example, in the Middle Cedar, we spent about $8.5 million on constructed wetlands and farm ponds uh, through our project. Over the same period of time, 8,400 miles of agricultural drainage were installed in the same watershed. So without the environmental compliance and stewardship, 
Um, we're simply, uh, again, not keeping pace with the intensification of agriculture in our state. You and a number of other uh, contributors to this collection point out that while we don't have the policy will to make these changes right now in the state of Iowa, and this is not a collection about politics, but that's a that's a part of our reality, we do know that a lot of Iowans care, and yet that hasn't been reflected in policy changes. It hasn't. And again, I think the, the best that, that I can do uh, is help to advocate and educate uh, people on the importance of those policy changes. Uh, we also see a growing movement in local foods in our state, and it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, opportunity for people to be engaged in the sourcing of, of the protein and the food uh, that they eat uh, each and every day. So it's another opportunity for um, increasing diversity on our landscape, uh, to move away from a, a two-crop you know, corn and soybean rotation, but to start to bring um, you know, vegetables and nuts and, and, and other food sources you know, onto our landscape. Larry Weber is a professor of civil and environmental engineering. He's the Edwin B. Green Chair in Hydraulics at the University of Iowa and director of the Iowa Institute of Hydraulic Research. And with me also, Cornelia Mutel, editor of Tending Iowa's Land Pathways to a Sustainable Future. We only have a, a couple of minutes left, Connie. And um, I'm, I'm curious, what do you hope people who read this collection, what do you hope they leave it with? Well, I, I certainly hope that they have a greater understanding of the problems and um, their knowledge base is increased. But, but again, I hope that they go on to address the problems. And the, the word of hope that I'd like to close with is the fact that even though all of, all of these four major areas of problems with our soil, water, air, and biodiversity, they all can intensify each other. But at the same time, any time we address one of these problems, we are also de-intensifying the other problems. So it's a win-win solution. If we do things to improve our soils, at the same time, we'll improve our water, decrease climate change, and increase biodiversity. And that should be a stimulus for, for everybody, I think, because as Larry mentioned, um, the people that do this see so many benefits coming out of single actions, multiple types of benefits coming out of single actions. I feel like in the news media, when we talk about these environmental challenges, we uh, maybe sometimes do a good job laying out the problems. But all of your contributors or many of your contributors also shared that there are solutions to these problems. They may not be um, being implemented widely. They may not have policy support among our lawmakers, but they are there. And I feel like that's a part of the story that just doesn't get told often enough. What do you yeah. feel? Um, I think that's true. And I think that what people need to realize that we now is that we now have choices with some of these problems. But if we don't act to solve them, in the future, we will our, our choices will be decreasing and we'll still be forced to deal with the problems. So the sooner and the more intensively we deal with addressing the problems, the easier it'll be and the better and more complete, more holistic the solutions will be. So it's, it's kind of a gain-gain situation on, on every front. Often when I read about climate change or some of these other uh, environmental catastrophes, I wind up feeling helpless. 
But this was also a, a collection that I found to be personally empowering. And that that's so important right now because uh, we have a generation who is coming of age in this environment. But they do have power, don't they, Connie? And yes. we all do. Yes, yes. And I think that <clears throat> what you just said about the book, that you felt personally empowered, I think that's the greatest compliment that you could give it. So thank you. Connie Mutel, thank you so much for talking with me today. The book is Tending Iowa's Land, Pathways to a Sustainable Future, edited by Cornelia Mutel. She also invited 27 other contributors to be part of the collection. It reads kind of like a who's who of science and agriculture and environment in the state of Iowa. And uh, I also spoke, of course, with two contributors this hour, Seth Watkins and Larry Weber. There are opportunities to attend readings of this book. There's one at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on Sunday, February 5th at 2 p.m. Dog-Eared Books in Ames, Friday, February 10th at 7 p.m. And Dragonfly Books in Decorah, Wednesday, March 1st at 7 p.m. The book, again, is Tending Iowa's Land, Pathways to a Sustainable Future. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Caitlin Troutman, and Danny Gear. You never need to miss an episode. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Search for Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.